Okay, this morning, uh, I'm going to read from Romans, the fifth chapter. And I'm going to read verses 20 and 21. Verse 20 says, Moreover, the law entered. What is the purpose of the law? That the offense might abound. But, thank God for this separation, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin has reigned, reigned as king, unto death, which is separation, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life. So we see the end of one and the eternal beginning of the others, of the other, through righteousness unto eternal life by Christ Jesus. So then we have Romans the sixth chapter. What will we say then? What should we say then? That we have this grace that abounds much more than Law and when we say law, let let's let's understand what law here is for the believer. This is Romans the eighth chapter, and the first and and second verses. This is Romans chapter eight verse one. There is therefore now, right now, no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life. In Christ Jesus, what has set me, has made us free from what? The law of sin and death. That's the law that it's talking about. The law of sin and that that, that separates us. Verse 3 says, For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for a sin sacrifice condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might continually be the experience of being fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So what then, in Romans 6 verse 1, what will we say then? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbids it. Because how shall you and I, how will you and I, that are, as far as God is concerned, dead to sin, live Is there any life there any longer? Don't you know that so many of us are, not were, but are baptized into Jesus? And this explains what baptism is. Baptism only has to do with death. We have been baptized, baptized into Jesus Christ. We're baptized into his death. Therefore, because of that, we are buried with him by baptism unto death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk continuously in the newness of life. For if we've been planted, buried together in the likeness of his death, we will also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, and this is very important, that our old man is not going to be, but is crucified with him. That the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin or that nature, that sin nature. For in for he that is dead is what? Is freed. Freed. And really freed there is justified. Declared guiltless. <laughs> oh my God. Declared guiltless. Is, 
is declared guiltless from sin. Thank God. It's not who we are. For he that is dead is, is what? It's justified from sin. Now, if we be and we are dead with Christ, we, those that are in him, believe that we will also live with him. Can we live without him? Do we have life without him in Colossians 3, 4? No. Knowing that Jesus, that Christ being raised from the dead, what? Dies no more. Death has what? No more dominion over him and you can add to there too in this context, and in us, in him. Do you hear that? Isn't that wonderful? It has no more dominion over us, right? So likewise, for, for verse 10, for in that he died, he died unto sin, what? That's what we did when we received him, what he did. We die, he died unto sin, one. But separated from what we're dead in, and no longer who we are, what? What does it say? But in that he lives, he lives unto God. How do we live unto God? Because we're in Christ. Likewise, reckon, count up, logizomai, count all up, count everything about yourselves outside of Christ to be dead indeed, what? Unto what? That's sin nature. <laughs> right? So in other words, to those that have died, to those who have died, what do we die to? We died positionally to sin. And the first Adam, that's what we died to, the first Adam. And now we are what? Alive to God. That's how he sees us. That's the only way that he sees us. We're alive to God and in the glorified last Adam of Christ, who is Christ in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 45. And that's what it says. Likewise, reckon yourselves also to be dead, indeed unto that old sin nature, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign as king, reign over you in your bodies, your physical bodies, that you should obey it in the lusts of the flesh thereof, because those were crucified. Those are gone, thank God. Neither yield you your members as instruments, and instruments there, the better word in the Greek is weapons. Don't yield your, your members as weapons of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God. That's the constant lesson that we're learning. Are continually yielding ourselves unto God, what? As those that are in absolute truth in God's view, alive from the dead and your members as instruments or weapons of righteousness unto God. Goes into that spiritual warfare, the weapons, and, if he, and putting on the armor and the weapons in Ephesians, the sixth chapter, in verses 10 to 18, in our walk through this wilderness world system. For sin will not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law. Oh, thank God. But under what? Grace. What are we under? We are under grace as far as God's concerned. That's where we are. His only view of us is in the grace that we are in Christ Jesus. So there's a question. Job had this question in the midst of his trials. Just think of the things that he went through. 
You know, a lot of us, we had our start and everything seemed to be so rich in our Christian life. We were blessed beyond, weren't we? Do you remember those times? Well, yeah, I do too still. Remember those times, and that was Job. And then, then the enemy, through God instigating something for him to do into Job, began a whole series of trials, a whole series of things. And you see the loss that he had. And in the midst of that, the question was this, and this is really for us as believers that are in Christ, because Job was definitely born again. You read that in the first chapter of Job. Have you considered my servant Job, how righteous he is? He made that clear. So you ever wonder why being so righteous and in Christ, so many things come against you? Just That just seems this intense struggle. Well, that was Job's experience. And what he said and the question is, the first and essential question for every single person before God is how can they be in his presence and walk in his presence as pleasing him? How can that be? Now the question here that Job was asking and, and, and at times what we ask, it's never a question of a righteousness which should satisfy all those claims of God, all those claims which he has on man. Because Job 12, verse 10 makes it clear, in whose hand is the soul life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. They're already his. But what are we? Well, what is the man that asks that? He's already a sinner, right? Unsaved. And when we don't experience Christ, when we don't as being in him, what do we experience? We experience being entirely alienated. And alien means that where we become, in our experience, we're not participating in the life that Christ has made mine in him. We become alienated. We talked about the word random, and we get all these thought forces and these uh, projections and imaginations that, that come against us in 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. But we become alienated experientially, not positionally, from the glory of God. Then you see man, he perishes without law. You see that in Romans 2, 14 and 15. He is condemned by the law in Romans 3. Oh boy, what a place, huh? In Romans the third chapter, verses 10 through 20. What is it that God is bringing us to? What was he bringing Job to? What is he bringing us to? And this is the place he's bringing us to. His infinite, unchanging love that he has for each of us as an individual. And, and that love sees us in this very condition. But it doesn't, for the believer, it doesn't know us after it. Not at all. No, nope. not at all, thank God. He, he sees us, he sees us ever in Christ in Job 36 and verse 7. He never removes his eye from the righteous, who we are in Christ. He would have to take his eye away from his son and what he accomplished for each of us individually. And of course, that's something he would never ever do because in Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 14, whatsoever God does, he does eternally. He does it forever. So he sees us in this very condition. You read the condition that we were in prior to Christ in Romans the fifth chapter in verses six through 10. He sees us right in that condition. And in that condition, he spared not his own son for us, for you and I, 
in Romans 8, 31. God for us, who can be against us? Romans 8, 31. Why? Because he spared not his only son. So how will he not now, if he spared us not his son and placed him positionally in him, how will he not in our experience as we go through the wilderness give us all things? You know, there's a term, it's a fortiori, God having already done the most, the most that he could do was to give us his son. Then with him will he not do all the others that are only even secondary in that sense, but as a part of it? Well, again, we see that he gave his son to us. He spared not. He didn't hold back his own son. Why? In order to blot out all the sins of those that believe on him. He's not in the process of blotting them out. They are already gone. That is a beautiful truth in Isaiah 43 and verse 25. He doesn't see us after our sins. And Isaiah 44, verse 22, he does not see us after those sins. Those sins are dealt with. He just has to get us to the place for us to see ourselves apart from them. And then we have a proper view. It doesn't become a distraction or, in our sight, God's view, an astigmatism, something that gets him away and blocks a proper image and a proper place that we have in him. Uh, experientially. So what has he done? For all of us that believe on him, what a truth that is. What a truth that we have. Let me just read the truth that is ours already in him, already in him. And I'm going to read this as God brings the scriptures in Acts the 13th chapter. And I'm going to read verses 38. And this is our position. This is our position that he's bringing us in our experience to our present reality be it known unto you. Oh my God. He doesn't want it just to be a declarative statement that we profess, but he wants it to be a present, continual confession. Known in your experience, men and brethren, that through this man, Jesus Christ, is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. Are our sins already forgiven? Those things that we struggle over, those things that we hate, those things that we do, are they already forgiven? No wonder in 1 John 1, 9, we're not praying for forgiveness. We're, we're confessing we are in 1 John 1, 9. We're confessing what we're not based upon who we are. Christ is our confession, our present confession in our life. In verse 39 of Acts 13, and by him all that believe are what? Justified, cleared of all guilt and condemnation from what? All things, listen, from which you could not be cleared of guilt and justification by the law of Moses. Right? Where sin abounded, we read it. What did much more abound? And then some on top of that. Paul had to use a whole, make up two or three different Greek words to make up much more. Superabound, and that is saying, his love and his grace superabounded. Then some more, much more on even top of that. Wow. Oh boy, when God does something, boy, he does it for ever for us. Why? Because he's for us. He's for us in every single thing, all the way that we're going through to meet and to be with his son forever. Now, he spared not his own son, but he gave him as a gift. At the same time, you and I have parted it. 
We are, that's, our, that's what we have. And we are fit. Colossians 1.12 says that he's made us meet, which means fit, as children of the light. Children of the light, that's what we are. He's made us fit. And listen, he's made us as fit and complete as Christ Jesus, the man that accomplished it. Oh boy, if we could just get a hold of that. Just as fit as he is, what? For the very glory of God, so that you and I become the very righteousness of God in him. Why? Because in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, he, God the Father, made him, Jesus Christ the Son, to be the sin sacrifice for us, who knew no sin, never having a sin nature, that we might be made, and we are made, we are made the righteousness of God in him. We're not trying to make anything. Listen, we are not trying through legalism of the flesh, through do's and don'ts. We are not trying to live the Christian life. Christ is our life. And, and grace is the only way to experience the truth and reality of it in a proper uh, image and a proper identification. So that the reality of that is that Christ is our righteousness in 1 Corinthians 1.30. Now, it was a part of this righteousness to put you and I right in the glory, right in the glory where Christ not only was, but is right now. Right, right now. That's our position. Because if that hadn't happened, he, Christ, would not have seen the fruit of the travail of his soul. That's in type that is brought out in prophecy in Isaiah 53, 10, uh, through 10 and 11. Listen, boy... Do all see that, that are his? Do all see that? Is that the place where he has us in our growth and grace? You know, Psalm 68, verse 19 says, he daily loads us with benefits. I thought of that this morning. He daily loads us with these benefits that have to do which, with us, which is a part of our new life. It's a part of our true image and identity. That, not, that just that life accompanies those blessings. You wouldn't even have those blessings to be added to. That's Romans 8.32. He that spared not his own son, will he not give us all these other benefits? Because when we talk about these many benefits of these many blessings, they reveal the limitless glories of the Son of God in whom we are in. And boy, what a thing that is to understand. And, and no wonder all things uh, work together for the good. They all do, no matter what, in Romans 8, verse 28. But here's the issue. Only God's grace, and we're going to see this word, only God's grace apprehended by the soul brings that soul of the individual into the light which manifests itself to that individual. No one can do that. But that individual submitted to Christ because he did it for each and every individual. And it is Christ himself through the light that he is that opens the heart for its reception. And boy, that can take some time. Boy, can it take some time with all of us. But I am so thankful with everyone here this morning because in his eternal love, he anticipated everything. He did. All our failures. 
the failures of others, all our rejections and the rejections of those, all those things that happened to us, in his love, he anticipated them. And he, and he gave us grace, prevenient grace, that didn't even have anything to do with our will. Because we couldn't at the time. Because we hadn't learned these things yet that are all ours in Christ. But he did. And he just continually and patiently, little by little, opens the heart for its, its reception. Now, here's the, the issue, is what he was revealing to me this morning. There is so much imperfection cleaving to all human nature. Now, we don't have a human nature anymore, but we still have the flesh in us. And that flesh, when we get into these growth periods, and when we get into these trials, when his love through grace is, is bringing us to a proper place, we begin through that if we haven't submitted to him. And we're learning. Remember, he doesn't have a thing against us. But that imperfection that cleaves to us cleaves and becomes an apprehension of what we think is divine grace. Does grace have anything to do with our thoughts at all? It just does. Anybody else's? Anyone's? My opinion? Anyone else's opinion? No. No. No, there is not. There's just so much that cleaves in the, in the flesh, especially in, in Christians, that has to do with what they think is an apprehension of divine grace. Right? Now, all human failure, all failure in the believer's experience, I can't fail because I'm positioned in Christ, but all failure, all failure, literally, what happens is what? Is that thing that leads to a defective life, a defective experience. Do we have a defective position? Any defect in Christ that he hasn't dealt with? He never had one in himself. All of ours were put on him. But is there any defect in him who is our life? In Colossians 3 verse 4, absolutely not. There's not a defect. No, not one single defect. But if I, through the flesh, fleshly apprehension of divine grace, that is the thing the enemy uses to lead us to a defective love life experience. And that in turn leads to a defective apprehension. And we're going to see what that, that apprehension, because that's some kind of a defect, right? But you know, the life that we have in Christ, it's indefectible. I looked up that word a long time ago, indefectible. Here it is. It's unfailing. <laughs> we're not at failures. He's dealt with them. It is unfailing. It is not liable to defect. That's who we are. <laughs> it's not. There's no failure or decay. It's indefectibility. It's the quality of being subject to no defect or decay. Boy, it's so huge. It is so huge. And it's not indeficient. Again, it's not indeficient. Christ is our sufficiency. He's our all in Colossians 3. In, in verse 11. But here's the issue of this. Here's the issue and some of the things that can happen as a result of that is that is what, when there's a failure in our experience, is it, is it the result of our position? No. It's a defective apprehension through the flesh 
being under the law and trying and struggling to do what's already been done and not resting in what has been finished. That is, that, that is what? That's all human failure. And it, that, what does that have to do with? Listen to this. It's all the blots and disfigurements of a Christian life that are traceable to that. It's like having perfect eyesight and then you get an astigmatism. Something begins to block the view of it. Everything is traceable to that. Now, you know what happens as a result of that, and we, this is something that I uh, had to go through and, and understand in the 70s and the 80s in my growth, that a common thought is that at least this, there's like an unbalanced apprehension of grace. That's what the legalist would say. No, there's some kind of an unbalanced apprehension of grace. Like there's something unbalanced in the grace and truth that Christ is in John 1 verse 14. And they would say that it tends to license. Ah, oh, I'm going to, God will give me grace to live in sin. And that's all I want it for. <laughs> and that's all I'll use it for. That's what the legalist will say. And that's a common thought. And then even when they translate this, and this was a problem, they'll translate Jude 4 and they'll say that they're turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and we're the legalists and we look out for that. (laughs) And we're trying to control people. Well, we're going to try and control them because they don't understand the proper, even the interpretation of the Koine Greek of that particular scripture. Because the reality of it is, that translation is, they're changing the grace of God itself. Into which, what? It is an unguarded use of it, that's all. That's what it says. It doesn't say anything else, and we're going to see that. It's a lack of putting it under, they say, of what? Do conditions. Like there's conditions to do with grace. When even grace, carries C-H-A-R-I-S, is the unmerited, undeserved kindness and favor of God towards objects that have no value and are entirely unworthy in themselves. But all the worth is in him who is their life. Individually. And so they, that's what they teach there's, there's a lack of putting it under due condition. Yeah, you got saved. Now you have to do this. Because after all, he did all this for you. Doesn't sound like it's a complete finished work, does it? It doesn't sound that way. Well, here's what happens with that. It becomes, in that way, capable of injuring the soul. It does. And that what? Too unreservedly the soul is being taught to commit itself to that kind of behavior. Boy, it's a great error. It's an evil and great error. And it is one that leads to a dis- to what? A distor- distorted results or a distorted self-image. In other words, everything that I, yes, Jesus saved me. Yes, he did. And I'm going to heaven But I take into Christianity all these things that happened to me from childhood all the way on. And I have to unlearn these things. They're not, I'm being separated through grace, through grace and truth in in experiential growth in 2 Peter 3.18. They are not who I am. 
They are not who you are. How you were treated, how you were rejected, how you never had rest, you never had primary security, but yet you were taught, even in Christianity, that God will tie his love to your performance. He did this, now you must do this. Which is absolutely, absolutely an evil, evil error of the enemy. And that is that that leads to a distorted image and as a result, distorted results and distorted behavior, still struggling and still reliving emotionally something that we're already dead to. Not only what I did and I hated, but what I hated and others did to me is gone and dead and gone, buried. It's not who I am anymore. Romans 7, 17 and 20, it is no longer I that do it, but that sin, that fleshly nature that is in me in Romans 8, 9, but that I am not of. Could too much then, could too much holiness lead to wickedness? Could you get grace enough? Could I get grace enough? Could it? Could too much love to God lead to throwing away holy reverence of him? Even in my weakest moment, could that? No. Romans 6 verse 14, the dominion of sin is not in the process of being taken away. It has been taken away. Position. Now it's being worked into my experience. And as I experience the reality of that, the sword comes in and it separates who I'm not, what I went through, all the wrong, all the hurt, all the pain, all the disuse and abuse. Not only that I did to myself, but others did to me. It's gone. He's cutting it away in my experience so that the position comes down and I experience a love that will never, no, never, and it doesn't ever leave us or forsake us and leave us alone. And he's always with us, even when we struggle outside of who he is with us. He never leaves us. He's just waiting in Isaiah 30, verse 18, to be gracious. So could that be, could we want too much of that? I can't get enough. No, the dominion of sin has been taken away from the soul only under grace and clearly speaks of this very, here's this word again, apprehension. Apprehension. Kata Lambano. To take eagerly. Oh, I'm struggling, but no, I take eagerly the grace and reality and truth of who I am in Christ. I eagerly seize it, and as I receive it, what has been done in my position now possesses me and separates me from everything else, and it means to lay hold of, and God has that through Christ for each individual to lay hold of it, so as to possess as one's own, meaning everything he did is your own. He's made it your own and my own, our own. And we're to appropriate it. And when we do, through dependence and through humility, we have a beneficial effect. And then that word that we have goes on to show us continually in our growth the contrary effect of the law. Not just the Ten Commandments in Exodus 23 to 17. No, but the law of sin and death in Romans 8, verse 2. No, the law of sin and death that we are not because we've been set free by the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. That's our position, and it's immovable. 
It is immovable. And thank God that word goes on to show us that negative and contrary effect of the bondage of the law. The effect is the discovery of a law of sin to which you and I experientially might be in bondage to. But is that experience a reality of who I am and my true position in Christ? It's not. So there's this work going on, this separation going on, and the sword of the Spirit cuts. It's all it's doing. When the cutting comes, it's not against us. It's cutting away that that is not for us in a proper experience. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, and no wonder in Ephesians 6, 17, it's so necessary, listen, to take the spirit, the sword of the Spirit in the midst of spiritual battle. Because it's that that does it. It's the, whole, it's the spirit of grace and the, the spirit of grace and truth that's in Christ. So as we begin to wrap up this morning, we can see that effect. Those areas of bondage where sin has dominion for the person that in their experience places themselves under the law of sin and death and stay there and struggle. But grace is the opposite of law. And what is it? It is the effect it is the exact opposite. It is the antidote to the law of sin and death. So when I'm struggling in sin and death, what do I do? What should I do in James 4, 8? Draw near to him. Don't wait. Don't stay in the struggle. Draw near to him, and he'll draw near to you. Then you'll cleanse your hands, and that's experience. It's done in opposition. And then you begin to purify your hearts, your right image, Right? You purify your heart from being double-minded. What, what I'm going through, what God is taking out of me, is who I am. It's my past, and, I'm, and the enemy comes in and wants me to emotionally relive it all when it's dead, and it's gone. Instead of experience of the life that's mine, that he has made mine in my own individuality in Christ. Grace is the exact opposite. It is the opposite of the law of sin. It's the setting free from bondage to it. It is power for holiness. You want to be holy, right? We struggle, don't we? We're all, we've all been there in Romans 7. Things we do, we don't want to do, but we do them anyway. Well, there's a power It seems to be more powerful than even our own will. Yeah, the will separated from Christ in experience, yes. Because I can will to do good, but what it will be present if my will isn't submitted? Evil is what? Present with me. But is that a proper experience? It's not. It's not who we are. Again. So again, this is not who we are. No. No, it isn't. We have power for holiness. And that power that Christ is, remember, we are kept by the power of God. Position. 1 Peter 1, 5. Christ himself in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 24 is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Do you want power to live a holy life? Can't do it other than just constantly receiving his grace. When I have dirty hands, should I try and wash them or run to him who's the only one that can clean them? Don't let dirty hands, don't let dirty lies, dirty opinions, dirty, keep you from receiving who you are in Christ. And for me and for all of us together. And let that love continually flow. God who is love and whose kingdom is in the heart. 
That's what he wants it in our experience. Can only be realized and experienced as the heart is laid hold of for him. That's Catalambango. That's apprehend. That's to be apprehended. To laid hold of for us. Listen, he's laid hold of us for God and himself when we received him and we were placed in him positionally. Now he has to cut away anything that gets in the way of that that has held us and keeps us properly in a proper experience, a proper image. And that's what he's doing in our growth. Thank God for that. What? And this is what? He has bound himself to us. He has welded himself to us, literally, by every faculty of his very being. Oh, boy. Oh, God. He so much more wants to give us, so much more than wants to just give us things. He so much more wants us to give ourselves to him so he can give himself to us. And he won't violate our free will. He just won't. And he's with us in the struggle. He's with us. He's with us in the thing that we hate, but the thing that we hate, he's already dealt with. The thing that I hated and went through, that I did to myself or someone else did to me, he's dealt with. It's gone. It is. It's completely gone out of his sight. But this is what this is what produces. And this is what faith dependence and humility and obedience produces. It's the response of a heart of the heart to the grace. His grace, listen, that seeks us. We're not left to just seeking him. His grace seeks us right where we're at, right in the struggle, right in the thing we hate. There's the grace right there. Just waiting. He's waiting to be gracious. Gracious, just like the father waiting every day for the prodigal to come home. Oh boy. It is that grace that's in Christ that has revealed God to us in his glory to each and every one of us so that he should be God. God alone, Christ, should be God over us. Period. And when that happens, grace reigns. No longer is sin and death, struggle, bad experiences, things that we went through reigning over us. But grace reigns. And when grace reigns, it's sovereign. It's above everything. It's absolute. It is absolute. To who? To all of us who are his children. We're his children. Thank God for that. Grace declared to us the fact that we are in Christ. We are in him. And it is that incredible, magnificent, glorious reconciliation that's ours through the cross. And what does it do? It secures to you and I even the needed discipline of a father's hand. Even in discipline, even when it seems things hurt, he's not against us. He's against what's in us that's not of who he is in us and who we are in him. He is not against any of us. No, he's removing from that, that grace that's kept out experientially from reigning in us. That is the incredible truth. And what that does is that he secures us back into a right position. That's that loving chastisement, all of us. And so we see this. That too is grace. It is God's divine favor taking account. Listen to this. It ta- and chastisement, listen. He takes account of all that it sees in us that is contrary to to Christ in us, (laughs) not to bring it against us. Oh, boy. Not 
to bring it against us, but to separate us from it and work in us conformity to his nature, his will, and nothing else would be grace outside of that. But this sweet, holy, divine action of a love that's for us, that just while against the evil in us is wise beyond even all our apprehensions, even all beyond what we don't know and can't figure out. If we're already accepted, did you know that you and I are already, we're already accepted in what we're trying to figure out? Is God trying to figure out anything about us? He figured it out in Christ. He figured it out in his sole love for us. And that love for us is so strong, so as never to be defeated in its purpose, but its perfect, complete, unended blessing. Then how? Boy, what a question. As I wrote this down, how could anyone imagine bad to come or unholiness to be the fruit of an entire self-committal to such grace as this and constantly and don't grow tired of it and don't grow weary of it. Don't let the enemy convince you it's too late, it's too long. Just continually receive what's already been done. Continually. How could we imagine that? No wonder it says to cast down imaginations. Keep casting them down. Why? And commit yourself to grace as this Listen, and here's the facts. Grace needs no balancing. (laughs) It does not. Grace needs no balancing with conditions. It doesn't need any modification with another principle to make it holy. It is that that in its essential nature is holy. That's who we are in Christ. That is who it are. So we need to be apprehended. I'm going to close with this this morning. I looked that up in the dictionary. Again, we did it in the Greek. Here's the 1828 dictionary. It's to take into custody. Oh, he sees what we're struggling with. He sees what the enemy wants to bring up of the past. He sees what we're presently struggling with and the doubts that keep us from going forward. He sees it all. And in his love, he's waiting just to take custody of us. He wants to take custody of us to be responsible for us, to make him and his grace and truth to be that responsibility that we need to receive and be accountable for. And and to grasp the meaning, especially experientially, they said intuitively, I crossed that out and put experientially, to perceive and to seize. Well, That's what he's conforming us to. He's conforming us to this proper image, a proper identity. He's showing us that Christ is our worth and all our value is in him. All the many benefits and blessings, the result of his many limited glories. Oh, what a place we have in him. And each of us has that particular place that only we can occupy. There's only room in the individual for Christ in that individual and him in that individual and he's done it for us all. What a love. It's an effect that, some, that produces, is, can only be produced by him. And boy, he's continuing to do what he's already done for us. So Lord, we thank you and praise you, Lord, as we begin to grow in this and to understand our proper image 
and thank you that we don't we do not have us we don't have a past you don't treat us after our past you don't treat us after anything but who you've made us to be in the love of your son as a brand new cre- creature a brand new cr- creature comes out of a brand new creation with a brand new image a brand new identity and thank you that we're learning this and we need to learn it as we're on our way to a face-to-face meeting with with our precious Lord in Jesus' name. Amen.